Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis.org, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the COVID-19 crisis and beyond. Hi, I'm Jana Emil, and today on Raise the Line, I'm happy to be joined by Dr. Alistair Martin. Dr. Martin is a practicing emergency physician and a faculty member in the Harvard Medical School Center for Social Justice and Health Equity. He had a particularly busy year as a founder of Vote ER, which is a nonpartisan project that provides people with the opportunity to register to vote. His passion for health policy that empowers patients also informs another project he created called Get Wavered, which aims to expand access to treatment for those struggling with substance abuse disorder. Thank you so much for being with us today, Dr. Martin. Thank you, Jenna, and it's a pleasure to be here. Excellent. So first, if you can start just by telling us a little bit about yourself and what led to your interest in pursuing a career within medicine and specifically emergency medicine. Yeah, it's a great question. My, my interest in emergency medicine really comes from my own personal story growing up in a low-income community in New Jersey. Grew up in a, a short town in New Jersey. It was a majority minority. Grew up with a single mom at home. And, you know, like many other families and communities like the one that I grew up in, we struggled with access to health insurance. We struggled with access to health care. And when it came time for me to get, you know, checkups or to get evaluated for non-urgent things, often the decision was to go to the ER, not unlike many of the patients who I see now. And so I learned from a young age that emergency rooms hold a special place in vulnerable communities. They not only help with emergent or acute issues, but they're effectively the central node that vulnerable communities go to when they, when they need things that are healthcare or healthcare adjacent, you know, things like getting a work note or things like, you know, getting a prescription uh, refill or addressing some of the other social determinants of health, things like housing access or issues with addiction. And so I learned from a young age that ER docs and emergency rooms really hold this incredible social safety net together and that it was going to be my responsibility to be everyone's doctor as an ER doc, irrespective of ability to pay, insurance status, other functions of our contorted healthcare system. And so when I went to medical school, it was fairly clear to me that I was going to be an ER doc. It was also fairly clear to me as a medical school student how broken our healthcare system is for those who it really, really cannot afford to be broken for. The most vulnerable patients, people of color, young people, poor people. And so what wasn't clear to me, though, was how I was going to fix it, how I was going to be part of the solution and not part of the problem. So I decided to take some time off, went to the Kennedy School of Government, learned how the levers of change work to a degree in this country when it comes to healthcare policy changes. And then I worked in state government for about a year up in Vermont, and then eventually came back to start my, my emergency medicine training here at uh, Harvard and have since stayed on as faculty after graduating. That is incredible. So one thing that you touched on, and I have this conversation sometimes too, so as a registered nurse and when I'm talking to students and other uh, healthcare professionals, it's interesting because I feel like in the role that we play in healthcare, 
we're positioned in a different way than other professions are positioned to see, right, kind of these social determinants that you spoke about. And what you've done is stepped out kind of outside of that clinical box to say, like, I recognize this and I think I need to help form a solution in this way and, and acquire these different skills and knowledge to do that. And so I'm really curious about the Vote ER, this initiative, and you know when and where and what inspired you and, and where that is now. Yeah, it's another great question. So you know, my experience as an ER doctor informed the why, right, behind why this is important. And my experience working in politics taught me the how, how we might be able to address some of the problems that I saw. But like, just to sort of start at the beginning, we have 50 million people in this country who are not registered to vote, voting age eligible people in this country. That's the entire population of Spain. And when you look demographically, the top three groups that are overrepresented in terms of not being registered are young people, poor people, people of color. Those are the same exact groups that are most often marginalized by our healthcare system. Young people, poor people, people of color. And so it became clear to me that we have a very obvious demographic overlap. Those two Venn diagram circles nearly completely overlap with regard to who is not registered and who is most often marginalized by our healthcare system. Let me pause for a second. There's no accident we have this overlap between who is not registered and who suffers the most. You see, because in our system, if you are not at the table, you are on the menu politically. And in order to make our healthcare system work better for vulnerable people, we have to organize them politically. We have to help them vote. And so VOTER really was just a, a very simple and straightforward approach to helping people get their power back. As Toni Morrison said, when you get these, these jobs that you're so brilliantly trained for, remember that your real job is if you have power to empower somebody else. Healthcare providers have forgotten that. And so VODR really is about how do we use healthcare settings, places where healthcare is delivered, to invite people to register to vote. And so I can tell you more about the, the functions of what that actually looks like, but that's the why. Yeah, I'd love to hear about that. And maybe in the context of this election season, I want to I want to say looking back at this election season, but it, often for me anyway, it feels like we're still in this election season. So if we reflect on that, you know, and, and you can tell us more about Vote ER. Do you feel like you accomplished, you know, what you wanted this to do? Yeah, it's another good question. Look, two years ago, we started the initial planning for this work. And we knew that we had to have a system that did that met three criteria. Number one, nonpartisan. Absolutely cannot be affiliated or associated with any candidate or any campaign. Number two, non-coercive. We absolutely cannot be having patients feel like, oh, if I don't register to vote, you're not going to give me my leave of floxacin. And number three, non-interruptive. I'm an ER physician. I do not have time to walk around an ER with a voter registration paperwork helping people register to vote. You're a nurse, Jenna. You don't have time. If I don't have time, you definitely don't have time to be walking around doing more paperwork. So it had to be non-interruptive because we have a job to do. And it's in the primary job is caring for patients. But while we're there, you know, the question is, could we come up with a system that was seamless for patients to do most of the work 
99% of the work to get themselves registered to vote. And so we started about a year and a half ago deploying kiosks to emergency room waiting rooms. These kiosks had big signs over them that said, you know, use this kiosk to register to vote. And we had gotten all the way up to February and March, we had 25 hospitals using these kiosks. And then the pandemic hit. And it did not become sensible to send another touchscreen surface, a fomite, to, you know, hospitals across the country in the middle of a pandemic. And so we had to pivot and we had a decision to make. You know, do we stop doing what we're doing? Because, you know, maybe the country just isn't in a good place for voter registration. You know, maybe it's not a good idea to be leveraging healthcare settings at this time. Or is this the real, is this the reason why we need to be doing this in the first place? We had so many doctors, individual doctors, med students, nurses reaching out to us saying, I'm upset. I'm angry. I'm frustrated that I'm using the same N95 for four weeks in a row. When previous to this, they told me this was a single use item. I'm, I'm pissed off that uh, I'm now being told I got to make decisions about who gets a ventilator and who doesn't. We heard this fury, this indignation from healthcare providers all across the country asking us, what can I do other than post on Twitter and Instagram? And we said, great, yes, post on Twitter and Instagram and get three people registered to vote. And so we created a new system called the Healthy Democracy Kit, which is, and I know the viewers can't see this, so the listeners can't see this, so I'll try to explain it in concrete fashion. Every healthcare provider, when they go to work, they need to wear a hospital ID. We, and, and most providers have a lanyard that holds that ID. What we've done is we've created a huge badge backer that goes behind your ID that has really clear wording on it that says register to vote on it. And it stands out aside from your ID. It has a QR code and a text message code that patients can use to register to vote or check their voter registration or get a mail-in ballot. And then they have a lanyard that we use to connect you know, their hospital ID and their, and their badge backer. The lanyard says register to vote on it as well. So for example, when I go to work on Saturday, what will happen is likely what happens every shift, the patient will ask me, hey doc, why does your lanyard say vote on it? And I'll say, well, it says vote on it because if you're interested, while you're here, I can help you get registered to vote. All you have to do is use that QR code or that text message and it'll take you 90 seconds. I think it's really important for you to register. So that's kind of how we do it. And we've gotten 25,000 healthcare providers across the country who have those healthy democracy kits. And we've gotten over 48,000 people either registered to vote or who have started their mail-in ballot process. These are healthcare providers across the country who are helping their folks uh, get ready to vote. That's amazing and brilliant. And a big takeaway that, you know, in times like this, you can have something that's the catalyst to not do, not continue to do the work, right? Because pan- pandemic hits and now it feels like the world is shaken and upside down and just forget everything that we had plans for. But you utilize that as the catalyst to say, no, we're going to keep going. And this is how we make the change. And maybe this narrative changes when it rolls around again in this world. That's fantastic. What about get wavered? I'm curious about that. So that's become a national model for expansion for treatment of opioid addiction. How does that work? Can you tell us how that works? And, you know, what does that have achieved at this point? It's a good question. It's animated by the same forces that VODR is, which is 
vulnerable patient groups who come to the emergency room, who ask of us if we can use the opportunity that we have with them to help them move forward in a more productive direction. And so we have in this country, you know, COVID has obviously knocked it down, down a peg, but we still are very much in the grips of a, of a national opioid epidemic. And when I started back in 2015 in, in emergency medicine, I had a patient who came to me asking for help with her opioid addiction. And I was a young and excited and naive new doctor who had worked maybe two or three shifts. And this woman came to me asking to get into recovery treatment. And I remember being in that room with her and, and feeling the like desperation that she had. She was even there with her suitcase. We call it the positive Samsonite sign. If a patient has a, if a, patient has a, a luggage, a piece of luggage or a suitcase in the ER, you know you're going to have a problem. This woman had nowhere else to go. She literally came with everything she had to the ER for us to help change her life. She was done with her addiction. She said she never signed up for this, never wanted this to happen to her. And she was asking me for help. So I leave the room and I'm thinking, of course, we're going to help her. Of course, you know, of course, as a, you know, two week old doctor, I had no idea what we were, were going to do. So I went to my attending, who's my boss. And I said, look, we got this woman here who needs help. And I created a, you know, draft plan. I said, we're going to, let's admit her to the hospital and let's consult some specialists and let's get her sorted out and get her on the road to recovery. He said to me, Alistair, that's wonderful. That's also not what we do here. Discharge her. I remember that walk back from my attending's desk to her room was like the longest walk I've ever taken. And I remember seeing her roll her suitcase out of the ER with a, a stack of discharge paperwork in her hands to detox facilities that I and she knew were defunct, that would not actually help her get into recovery. Half those numbers didn't even work. They weren't even the right numbers. The other half, you needed some mega insurance to get, which she didn't have. And so I was discharging her to, uh, with a bridge to nowhere. And that is the current state, unfortunately, in the majority of ERs across the country. So Get Wavered was all about how do we transform emergency rooms into the front door for recovery? Well, you have to first start by having a DEAX waiver so that you can prescribe medication called buprenorphine. The vast majority of people who get started on buprenorphine get their lives back, recover, get their jobs back, make amends with their families, go back to school. And so in 2015, this was definitely not the norm. Get Waivered is all about trying to get as many physicians across the country to get their DAX waiver so that they can prescribe buprenorphine in ED settings. We've at this point gotten about 3,000 doctors across the country to get their waivers. And these are agents of change, of change in their local ERs and communities, and they're helping to institute protocols uh, in their ERs to help get patients into recovery. Fantastic. What's next for both of these things then? So what can we look forward to for Get Wavered and for Vote ER? Yeah, great question. For Vote ER, the goal is to deepen the foundations of our networks all across the country. As I mentioned, we have about 25,000 individual healthcare providers who are using VoteR kits to help their patients register to vote year round because strengthening our democracy is more than just what happens on November 3rd. It's a year round 
exercise. It's a muscle that must be strengthened. So we are uh, deepening our networks in that regard. We have about 300 hospitals so far that are partners of ODR. We'd like to 10x that over the course of the next year to two years. And uh, really, it's all about how do you build power, not only within the patients that we serve by helping them get registered to vote, but also how do you build power among healthcare providers? Healthcare providers for too long have been apolitical, have been bystanders, have been, as I mentioned, items on the menu. And so how do we you know, help providers learn some of the fundamental skills of community organizing, of making hard asks, of power mapping? These things that we do here at VODR, because that's just how you do this work nationally, we want to teach that to other providers so that they can be effective in their local communities. Forget wavered, it's simple. We want 10,000 people who we have helped wavered in the next 16 months. And so we currently are on pace to get there. The way we do it is we actually have national Zoom waiver training classes that are these mega classes. So one of our classes in May had 1,200 participants who signed up. An upcoming one that we have in uh, December has about 600. And so uh, if folks are interested on that end, you want to get your waiver, go to getwaiver.com slash remote. Classes are free. You can sit at home in your living room and do laundry and your dishes and get your waiver. So that's how, that's the next step on that end. And on VODR, if you want to get a kit, that's free also. Uh, we highly recommend you do it. It's vot-er.org slash kit. Get your kit, start empowering your patients, start empowering your friends and family, and make sure that you are part of this uh, democratic process year-round. Excellent. And you can't beat free, guys. So <laughs> you just can't beat it. Awesome. So I'm going to pivot a little bit to COVID because we cannot ever have a conversation, right, without COVID. It's just a very real thing and multi-layered and happening to us in very different ways. I'm curious, you know, from your perspective, especially being in the ER, what do you think that this crisis, this COVID crisis, has revealed about our healthcare system? And what are some of those key steps that you feel like need to be taken in order to strengthen it? You know, I think that COVID unmasked the, for some people, glaringly obvious healthcare disparities that we have in our country. Look at who died the most, disproportionately speaking, people of color. Look at where you saw disproportionate impact of morbidity, mortality because of COVID. Big urban cities, metropolitan areas, and primarily in those cities, the low-income districts. Look at who, who was able to work from home or who was able to go to their summer house at the Cape, right? And, and who wasn't? And so at the end of the day, I think what it demonstrated to us was we have a deeply unfair and two-tiered system, not only of our healthcare system, but, but, but of our labor system and who is able to have flexibility in their work and who is not. And until we are able to start from the beginning when it comes to health policy, thinking about health equity, we are going to continually, continually chase our tails. I have a, a good example of that. When it came time for us to be thinking about uh, instituting crisis standards of care 
in our hospital here, in our, not only our hospital, but in our whole healthcare system, uh, healthcare, basically the chain of hospitals that are, that are associated with, with my hospital. And by the way, it wasn't just my healthcare chain. It, was, it wasn't just my hospital. It was every single hospital in the state of Massachusetts. We had to come up with rules about who was going to get a ventilator, who wasn't basically. Well, guess what happened? The rules stated, if you have things like diabetes, or if you have things like and stage renal disease, or, or, or even CKD with a creatinine over three, or if you have obesity or HIV, all of these things that are found at higher rates in communities of color, you get those points to count against you, making you less likely to get a ventilator. Well, why do those folks have those diseases at higher rates in the first place? Because of the brokenness of our healthcare system. So now when they come to the ER with COVID, a disease that impacts them more frequently. Now you're telling me that also they're less likely to get a ventilator, less likely to get critical care resources, less likely to get resuscitation. And so just one example of many, where if you don't start with health equity, what you'll find is you'll end up creating systems and policies that just deepen the divide. And so I would say that it's not enough to, you know, to first, it's not enough to just identify that there are healthcare disparities. It's now what do we do with it? And so that's the challenge for healthcare. That's the challenge for each of us as individuals, because there are a lot of policymakers and decision makers that are listening to this. What will you do to ensure that the policies that you help to implement start with health equity? So you don't inadvertently deepen the divide. So you don't inadvertently cause more harm. So that would be the challenge for all of us. That's a fantastic point. I just want to stick with that for a minute with health equity and specifically thinking about healthcare professionals, right? So I always, again, I'm I'm the person who's always advocating for get out there and do something. You're more than the doctor, the nurse, the nursing assistant, you know, this person, you, we meet people at various stages of their life. We see the community in ways that other people don't see community because of how they come to present themselves in the ER or, you know, on the unit. What do you think as far as a healthcare professional, whether we're talking about doctors or nurses, what do you imagine needs to be a part of our role in order to better serve the community and to be more astute to pick out and to identify when we see this disparity, we know it's happening right? And we have ideas. What do we need to do that, right? Like what didn't we learn in school that we need to make sure that we're equipped and empowered with so that we can help to push these changes? Yeah, it's a good question. I think the, the first thing I'll say is most people did not learn this in school. And that's an unfortunate reality. I think that just like we didn't really learn civics in school, many of us, and we didn't really learn the legacy of historical injustices towards people of color in this country in the correct way, or the legacies of institutional racism in the correct way in this country. So in fact, it's not even learning, it's almost unlearning that has to occur first. People have assumptions and misconceptions and biases about why certain groups, people of color, have worse health outcomes. Aspersions that there's like, you know, some sloth or this, you know, insensitivity towards their own health or a lack of care towards things that might make them healthier. All of these things represent, unfortunately, the bias that's been drilled into us living in this country. So there's unlearning that must begin. 
first, I think. And, and, and folks have to check their own biases and, for, and figure out how do you really think, what do you really think about why we have healthcare disparities in this country? And you start digging into that a little bit and you start to, you start to go back to, well, actually maybe the system is actually working exactly as it should and patients are just suffering the consequences of that system. For example, you start reading about redlining and the ways in which African-American, African-Americans um, after the Great Migration were effectively corralled into the poorest, less health, least healthy, most congregated slums of big cities. You start reading about the way that certain groups were blocked from, for example, the GI Bill or ability to get home loan assistance or mortgages to begin to accrue equity. And you start to begin to sort of make the, the connections that maybe this is not so much individual decision-making that's leading to uh, dramatic healthcare disparities in this country. Maybe this is just actually the result of policymaking over the course of decades, if not centuries. So I think that that would be the first place to begin is to sort of do some internal reflection on how, on what you really think about why there are healthcare disparities and then go educate yourself, figure out if, if you're right or wrong, maybe you have it correct. But I think if you look at the history and you look at the, the arc of history with regard to policies um, and how they impacted people of color in this country, you'll, you'll come to a, a conclusion that I think most, most folks have, which is that uh, the system is deeply unfair and we have to exert a lot of effort, energy, and, and intention to try and undo where we are now. That's excellent. Excellent and actionable. Thank you for that. So, you know, we're a teaching company and we love to fill knowledge gaps. So I'm curious, is there any topic that you'd like to educate us on that you think everyone ought to know? The connection between politics and public health is incredibly robust. In fact, to try and disarticulate public health from public policy is nonsense. Where there is higher voter turnout, more resources, i.e. money, is dispersed to those districts. What does that mean? What that means is when the mayor is thinking about who gets that next health center, who gets that next boon of assistance for folks who need whatever form of health care they need, where do they look? They look at who voted. They look at who contributed. And often, politicians have this great internal tension, right? They sit with their aides in a room, and they look at two different maps. On one map, it's who are all the people who voted for me at high rates, who turned out to vote? And on the other map, it's who needs the most help? What are the areas that need most assistance? Unfortunately, what ends up happening is the groups that turn out, the groups that contribute to political campaigns are the ones that are from districts that don't actually need the help, right? But because they did so, they did turn out at 60% turnout as opposed to 12% in the black community of that city. That 60% turnout group, they're getting it all, right? Because that politician feels a sense of what? Reciprocity. 
maybe unspoken reciprocity. Sometimes it's spoken. I've been in the room. So in order to be, be able to correct some of the healthcare disparities that we have, and in order to really truly send assistance to the areas that, that really need it, we need to help our people vote. We need to help our people be part of the process. Why? Because politicians listen to and um, are attentive to the folks who are actually being part of the process. Unfortunately, I mean, that's just the reality of the system that we've built. And so I would think a lot about how do we help our most vulnerable people be part of this political process, have their voice heard, because it benefits us all. That's the education, the homework I would give folks to learn more about that connection between politics and what that actually ends up representing in terms of local healthcare policy and the distribution of resources. Noted. That is great advice. And for our students right now in our audience who are listening for our healthcare professionals that are early on in their career, is there any other advice that you would give them in the way of, you know, how to meet the challenges of the moment? And that can be COVID and dealing with that, or that can be, you know, what we've been talking about, about these healthcare disparities. Is there any other advice that you would give to these, these early folks I used to think that there was this room of smart people somewhere in state government and federal government who had like 30 whiteboards all around them and had some of the smartest minds in one room figuring this all out, all the challenges that we have. And then I learned that room doesn't exist. You are in that room. It's on us now. All of these policies that I've talked about the issues with our healthcare system, the ways in which we don't care for people in the ways that we should. None of these things are immutable. All of them are subject to change. They just really need energy, effort, and intentionality from you to fix them. And, and they, don't, they won't change if you don't get involved. What I learned also is that those rooms often are not filled with folks like those, you know, really smart people in a room. They're not, they're not thinking necessarily about what are the innovative new ways that we can uh, make things better. Often they are the agents of the status quo and often they want to keep things the same. So I'll end with this. We are who we've been waiting for. Get to work. Amazing. Thank you so much, Dr. Martin, for being with us today. This has been fantastic. Thank you, John. I'm Jonna Emil. Thanks for checking out today's show. And remember to do your part to flatten the curve and raise the line. We're all in this together. For more information on how you can help raise the line and flatten the curve, go to osmosis.org slash COVID-19. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our podcasts at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast. <laughs>